Hello, and welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and we are traveling together through Lent. And this season in Lent, we are looking at the subject of justice, a just Lent, learning to love what God loves, and we're walking together, seeking to know and to feel God's heartbeat for justice and to ask God, where have we fallen short? Where are we complicit in injustice? Where do we need healing? Where can justice be brought? And we're looking at many of the the areas in our life together as human beings where things have been unjust and where sometimes the church has helped, sometimes the church has been complicit. Many times, those of us who are experiencing privilege, we don't have eyes to see what others are going through, and that's even an act of injustice in and of itself. And so today, we are deep into Lent. We are in week five, and we are looking at the topic of suffering, communal suffering, can these bones live? And we're actually talking about the Pascal mystery as well, this very essential rhythm of the spiritual life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, that this is the essential rhythm of the Christian life, but also looking at how different people with their own different experiences actually approach the Pascal mystery. And so I have back with me today, we are the Fab Three, I think. We've got <laughs> David Bailey, our public theologian, culture maker, catalyst maker, focused on building reconciling communities, founder and chief vision officer for Arabon. I don't need to go through all of his qualifications today. And then we also have the Reverend Tina Harris, ordained in the United Methodist Church, who holds a Master of Divinity from St. Paul School of Theology. She is also an attorney and a diversity leader, both outside of the Transforming Center and certainly within the Transforming Center. And so I just love the fact that the three of us get to reconvene around this very important subject having to do with Lent. And we're going to start with Ezekiel 37 because that is the Old Testament reading from the lectionary. And this is the story where Ezekiel has the vision of the dry bones. And we're going to talk about whether the bones of our justice work can actually live, all the ways in which we have hurt one another in the human situation. Can these bones live? Can justice reign? So let's hear this passage as we begin our conversation today. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. And I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into me, and they lived, and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, 
These bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, Mm. says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, with our subject today being about suffering, and not just individual personal suffering, but there's this theme of communal suffering, especially here in this passage. A whole community had suffered oppression, and a whole community had felt like they had died, gone into the grave, and now a whole community is being brought back to life. And it speaks to this issue of communal suffering, how we suffer together in different people groups, and also the mystery of our faith, that there is this mystery of suffering and dying and falling into the grave and waiting there in a very dark place and then being brought back to life by God himself, resurrection, if you will. And so I would like to hear what you all hear in this passage today for us to do a little bit of definitional work around suffering and and the role of suffering in the spiritual life. And uh, sometimes I feel like white people have very little understanding (laughs) about communal suffering because there has been so much privilege and that there's a lot for us to learn about the role of suffering in our spiritual formation. What gets formed in us through suffering? And, you know, Dr. King talked about redemptive suffering or unmerited suffering and how uh, even for him as a leader, he felt that suffering through unmerited suffering was part of his formation as a leader. So let's talk today about collective suffering and the role of suffering in our formation and this great mystery of our faith that we too, as part of our formational journey, as part of our transformation, suffer, die, wait, and then find resurrection. What are you all hearing? So I've preached on that passage before and I've read it numerous times. And what jumped out to me today was how important it was to prophesy to the bones. And notice the prophesying isn't speaking to the bones of saying you're dead and you're dry. (laughs) Um, The prophesying is saying that what could be, like what is possible and how important having voices who prophesy into what anyone else who might think is hopeless situations, but being reminded of this isn't uh, the end, that there is something beyond this that God can do through us, I think is so important. And when I think of justice work, like I don't know how people can do any kind of work without just literally holding on to God's unchanging hand, because there are some things we cannot do. (laughs) We will not be able to do without God's intervention, moving through us, God's Holy Spirit, because it does look like it's you know, it's just dry and dead, but we know that, but with God, that Mm. there's always something, um, on the other side. And so I'm, I'm grateful to hear it again today and be reminded that it's not just speaking to the bones. It is truly prophesying to the bones. And that's something we do at the direction of the Lord. That's really good. Sister Tina. I just, yeah, the, the, the role of prophecy, uh, is so important because it's allowing, 
ourselves to be filled with the spirit to, to, to agree with what God is doing, you know? Yeah. But as we think about suffering, when, one thing I was just thinking about, like suffering is just like key to the human experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when you think about in order to bring life, like literal life in, there has to be suffering of both the mother and the child to child's in generally a homeostasis kind of space and to have to kind of get out into the world and adjust to this new experience. Crying and discomfort is one of the first things that happens in this experience. It's, it's resting because I think like, you know, when you do podcasts or you publicly speak and you listen back, you, you, you know, you, you always do the Monday morning quarterback thing, you know, and like replay mm-hmm. the next day. <laughs> and I was even thinking about this because even like I remember on the um, the first episode of the season, there is something about what it means to be white in America. And there also um, there's a layer to also what it means to be like economically, educationally, rela- relationally privileged. And so I, I think it's like layered, you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. white and, and economically privileged could be put together. Mm-hmm. in ways that are coupled and, and I know what that means but I just also I was like I also want to name there's just a lot of suffering poor white people in rural spaces you know uh, or just in general but even like I know for me as an urban educated like upperly mobile African-American you know person like I at 2016 one of the things that I was just made aware of with the voting of Trump and Trump becoming the president that there were a lot of suffering rural white folks that he was speaking to that mm-hmm. were just not on my radar, mm-hmm. you know, that were, were not a part of my, when I thought about my brothers and sisters, they weren't the people that I was thinking about, you know? And, um, and so they made me a little bit aware. And I think about that because, you know, these bones are like separate bones, you know, it's a, it's a pile of bones. It is a, a part of a body that existed at one point that is all like disparate parts of this, like this body. And what the spirit, what God is doing is going through a process to assemble the body back together yes. in ways so that flourishing can happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost like a recreation of what we see in Genesis 2, right? Where like God is out of the ground forming Adam you know, out of these dry bones, God is, is recreating, right? And then God still has to breathe new life into it. It's only the spirit that that makes things happen, right? And and, and that's like not human, that's not human power, right? That That's, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's something that's like so important for us to remember is that how much of the work of the spirit is really key uh, to this work. And so, you know, they're in exile, they're suffering. Mm-hmm. They're in a communal space. They're like, how is God going to show up? What's going to happen? And there's Ezekiel that has faith that I don't know how God's going to show up, but God is going to show up. Ezekiel puts himself in a position to be able to be used by God to to prophesy. But the symbolism of these disparate bones is also symbolism of the, 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 the disparate aspects of the body of Christ that it takes the Holy Spirit uh, empowered uh, work and just God being at work forming and creating us to be able to to do something that only God can do and we can't do by ourselves. Mm-hmm. For me, as we've in in this season, we've just had some deep conversations about all that is broken, you know, in our world and all the areas where there has been injustice and how 
humans have perpetrated injustice against one another. And you can feel real despair about all that and wonder, can it all be brought back together? And and so not to be triumphalistic, but Ezekiel 37 is kind of an amazing prophetic word for us around the brokenness that we're seeing. You know, you want to ask the question, can these bones live? Can this human race where we have harmed each other so much in so many different ways, can it all be brought back together again? Like you said, David, you know, disparate bones, things that have been very, very broken apart from one another. Can it all be brought back together into some sort of a being that can actually live? So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm encouraged by the image and encouraged by the prophetic nature of this passage and want to lean into the hope that's there, that even things that look this dead <laughs> can be brought into back into something that lives and has life on the earth and that has a spirit within it that can do good things for others. Um, so I know that's part of what the passage is meaning to me right now, placed here within the lectionary scriptures, that even given the, the, the real challenge of the things that we've discussed, God is saying something this dry and dead and separated from its parts can be called back together by the goodness of God and by the Spirit of God. Mm. And maybe, you know, it's even necessary, according, you know, to the Pascal mystery, what we're heading into, that for anything good to come, there is this passing through death and in and a waiting period where you do have to wait and wonder can anything good come from all this? This week of Lent, week five, does bring into focus that one of the things that's central to our Christian spirituality is the fact that there is this mystery of suffering, death, on the way to transformation. Let's talk a little bit more about the role of suffering in our transformational journey. I know one of the questions that I've often wondered is, how does the mystery, the Pascal mystery, this, the talk of suffering, you know, Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die before being brought into his glory? You know, that's a hard word from Luke, Luke 24, where Jesus, when he's walking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and they're processing their grief, and they're processing the violence and the suffering that they've witnessed, and Jesus himself says, and this is before they know who he is, he says, was it not necessary? It was necessary for the Son of Man, or for the Messiah, to suffer and then die before being brought into his glory. But, but I've wondered, how does the Pascal mystery, this rhythm, how does it land on the ears and on the hearts of those who have already lived a great deal of suffering and oppression? How does the Pascal mystery land? Is this, is this just one of those places where even our Christianity can be used against those who are experiencing unmerited suffering and can be used to, as just one more reason why you have to put up with it, you know? How does it land? I could maybe take a crack at this. I'm in New Orleans at this time right now, leading a pilgrimage um, of the South that I lead a few times a year. And uh, we were walking around the Whitney Plantation. Um, it is very mm. different than reading about slavery. Mm. It's very different than going to a museum. It is pretty gnarly to just walk mm. around on the land 
where oppression has happened in this particular plantation, uh, which is the first of its kind, actually tells the story of the plantation from the vantage point of people who were enslaved. You can do plenty of tours to learn about the beauty and the architecture and the families of whoever owned the plantation, but the perspective of the people who were enslaved is really profound. And what is really messed up a part of our story, like in the American U.S., and even kind of the global project of slavery was just the weaponization of Christianity, where the Bible that enslaved people were given, about 80% mm -hmm. of the Old Testament was taken out, about 40% of the New Testament was taken out. And, 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 and the thing that was oftentimes given was just the aspect of like, like the weaponization of even suffering. That like, you know, if you suffer, then if you, you know, you'd be a good slave, then you will, you know, be able to make it to heaven. And there's yeah. like a weaponization that happened uh, in that space. But what's so fascinating is just how the Holy Spirit worked to lead and guide people to all truths in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. Where even though the slave masters were giving them this oppressive uh, Jesus that looked more like Caesar than it looked like Jesus of the scripture, folks that could not read somehow were able to realize that Jesus was the suffering servant and they, the spirit gave them the wisdom to know everybody that's talking about heaven is not going huh. that they realized that they, they were more like Jesus than the enslaved uh, um, folks that were saying they were Christian were Christian because they, Jesus was a suffering servant that experienced like a uh, 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 resurrection and hope. And, and I just find that to be very, very profound. I mean, I, I it was one of the greatest privileges that I've had in my life was, you know, your brother Ruth has this farm. He bought this farm, did this retreat, and, uh, I mean, you know, had a center for the retreat center, but mm -hmm. the property had unmarked graves of enslaved people, about 20, 17, 20, I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. number. But Bill asked me to be one of the two people to do the dedication of that time and, and it was so profound for me. I remember being at the podium of the dedication, my enslaved brothers and sisters who were behind me, many of them end up coming to faith. And I was just in that moment realizing how much of my faith and like how much of my belief is tied to like my ability to access like my education or navigate the world and all these type mm -hmm. of things. And many of these brothers and sisters had a deep kind of faith that That's right. there was no lever that they could pull in, in this worldly earthly sense, but yet they were praying and praying and praying that one day God would deliver them. God would deliver their children. And here I am standing, giving words of dedication to the sacred space. I'm at a point in time where I've made a living my whole life with my ideas and not my hands. I was a musician. I'm a public mm -hmm. theologian. I was holding my grandma's hands one time. She said, baby, you've never done any hard labor in your life before, have you? <laughs> <laughs> she found you out. <laughs> I got these soft hands, you know? Like, yeah, like, I have cut grass before. Like, you know? <laughs> 
and that was just like so profound. Like I just am like the deep revelation of like what's happened from this type of unearned suffering and like how the Holy Spirit work with folks who were like not formally educated, but God was able to speak. To, like th there's something about this Pascal mystery. And when you read uh, narratives of enslaved people who were Christians, you see all of this in the text in ways that I, I just don't even think that those of us on this podcast, we can't even grasp the depth of right. what you understand. Cause they're just, right. it, it's a mental exercise for us because they were just living in a whole different way. And I think they're testifying to us in ways that we, 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 we ought to try to ask the Lord for ears to hear. Mm -hmm. David, you mentioned the weaponization of suffering. I just also want to point out that in our 2023 America that we live in, that there is a particular theology that suggests that if you are suffering, then you've sinned. And so it's sort of like prosperity gospel on steroids type thing. And I believe that if suffering is, you know, hardship, distress, pain, brokenness, um, injustice, that everyone will have suffering in their life. I think the difference is for, for me that it will be that I I expect it in some way. So I've lived a life. I don't expect to live a life where I'm not going to have any kind of suffering. I don't expect, I don't live a life where I expect my whole, uh, everybody in my community to be without suffering. And I've even heard it from the pulpit many times where, well, someone will say, if you have, you know, if you haven't gone through anything hard yet, just keep living because it's coming. And, and perhaps that is the way in which I sit in my privilege that um, I have certain privilege, but I, um, I don't have privilege that allows me to assume that I'll be able to avoid um, suffering in any way. And because I've seen those who came before me walk through the suffering with great hope, but also great strength and respond with incredible compassion for others and respond uh, and grow in much resiliency. I think that I've learned how to walk through the suffering. Now, mind you, I'm not, I'm saying I expect it. I don't want it. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> kind of crazy kind of theology, but I am suggesting that I, I know that if there's nowhere that it's promised where I'm going to avoid it in that Bible. So I just know it's coming. I think it's important to remind ourselves that the Jesus who said, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory, that he was someone who had been living as an, as an oppressed person among an oppressed peoples mm -hmm. and that his experience on the cross was equatable to lynching as we've experienced it in our own culture where the Romans were allowed to do whatever they wanted to the Jews without impunity. That's what the mm -hmm. crucifixion was. Mm -hmm. And so he was speaking uh, as a, a man who had been living as a part of an oppressed peoples and who had just experienced incredible injustice, violent injustice is what we would call it. Mm -hmm. And he's the one saying, was it not necessary? Mm -hmm. Which does elevate it. Yeah. You know, and we were talking about this, like the slave Bible, just 80% old Testament was like taken out 40% of the new Testament was like, you know, taken out. There ended up being this, like in order to justify slavery, there was this separation of like a spiritual gospel and like the social impact was separated theologically. I mean, it took a while before they named it the social gospel, but that notion was all, was like really separated. So like even Exodus was not like, if you believe Exodus really happened, then you have to realize it just wasn't a spiritual deliverance. 
It was an economic deliverance. It was a political deliverance. It was a social deliverance. And so you oftentimes have people who, the same folks that believe the exodus happened to real people, also don't accept it that it was like the economic, political, social, and, and because we've inherited this like separation in ways that we've inherited because of the like justification of slavery and justification of Jim Crow. And so now where very few of us actually believe that today on the surface, but we still have inherited like a lot of that theology. And in many ways, we've also still read the slave Bible mm -hmm. because we don't read Amos and Micah and these liberatory type of like texts. So if any of this feels new or uncomfortable, it could be because in functionally you've been reading the slave Bible and not actually like engaging in this way. And then this is in addition on top of the fact that we live in the wealthiest country in the world. There's a story of now Rene Badia was at the Lausanne Covenant and the Lausanne gathering was a conference where, um, you know, it's supposed to be all of the people talking about evangelism in the world. And the Americans were kind of throwing their weight around like we Americans could do from time to time. And Rene Padilla is this tremendous South American theologian. And he kind of calls the Americans out on the carpet about this. And, you know, one of the things that he, he says, as he says, a lot of profound things, but he, one of the things he said was, hey, all of you Americans believe in a prosperity gospel. Some of y'all are charismatic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, like, when you think functionally, the way that we, like, functionally live, the only reason why we get upset with the prosperity gospel, if it's not tied to the, to the Protestant work ethic, mm. you know? And so, like, if it's, if it's like, really about wow. verbal, That's good. if it's only about, like, verbal uh, proclamation, then we're upset with the prosperity gospel. But, but if you think about it in your own private time or in pastoral counseling session, it's like, hey, I did all the right things mm -hmm. and this thing should work. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if we remember that Jesus was like born an unaware teenage mother mm -hmm. that had to be a refugee, go to mm -hmm. Egypt. And Egypt was always cold for slavery and the place of oppression for the Jewish people. And that's where Jesus found refuge. Then having to go from there to come back and end up being a Nazareth and it was like it wasn't the gated community he wasn't a privileged Roman citizen he was a second class citizen like almost like folks in apartheid or Jim Crow in this particular time of our U.S. context you know and then in the midst of all of that like you just said Ruth you said hey do I have to suffer mm -hmm. like if we if we understand that Jesus mm -hmm. versus kind of like our Americanized Jesus I think that really changes the way that we engage with both the text and suffering and all of that stuff. And, and for many of us, I mean, including myself, I mean, we just, there's a, there's a renewing of the mind that we have to engage in. That's very difficult to do as American citizens that, that do not have to like really depend on the Lord for our daily bread. Like I, I literally don't have mm. to pray for that. I mean, that's just like, I, I pray for it, but it's like, I pray for it in ways that, that's not really required to food. I could probably fast more, you know, in a situation like that, and first have to wonder about that type of thing. And so I think that's that's something that we really want to lean into in this time of season. Mm -hmm. Well, and the thing is, <laughs> it's hard. It's it's not like we can orchestrate this for ourselves either, right? You know, yeah. And and I remember doing a teaching on the Pascal mystery once, and 
there was a group of younger younger men who were elders at a brand new church and they really had the serious question do does that mean that really everybody has to go through suffering (laughs) and death and burial and resurrection and I just thought for a minute and I thought then I said to them well I think if Jesus had to go through the Pascal rhythm I think we all are probably gonna have to you know (laughs) and then they wanted to know could they rush it then wow. they wanted to know, is there any way that we can like make this happen quicker and sooner? I have reflected on that for years because I've thought nobody can actually choose this for ourselves. This is something mm-hmm. God orchestrates. This mm-hmm. experience of suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. We don't choose it for ourselves. It's something that God orchestrates. I don't want to say God causes it necessarily, but it is a rhythm. It's a necessary rhythm yeah. for our transformation. And, and so one of my questions, too, is how do we know when we're being invited into the Pascal mystery of suffering, death, burial, and resurrection? Or how do we know if, there, if it's a time when God is saying to us, no, stand up and resist? That's a good question. Because what's happening here is, is not right, and I'm, and I'm inviting you and I'm asking you to challenge it. Like, how do, how do we know when it's time for us to lay down our lives or what, when it's time to straighten up our backs and say, no, this is a time for me to fight? That's a good question, Ruth. I've been waiting to get here all five weeks of Lent. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting till I had the two of you. Lord have mercy. You, you were waiting for Tina to, to drop the bomb. <laughs> no <know>. way. <laughs> Not at all. Bless the Lord. I do wonder if, there, if it has to be an either or. Mm-hmm. And so I am just thinking about how one of my favorite little passages in the Bible says, you know, I believe God helped my unbelief. And mm-hmm. so how both those things can happen at the same time and how we can be in the process of suffering and dying, but get still called to speak up mm-hmm. and speak Uh, whether it be prophetically Mm -hmm. (laughs) and say this is not right and there's something better because we're not doing I mean this is all like in the Lord is doing it with it the Holy Spirit is doing it in us and so I think it's possible for both of those things to happen or for them even simultaneously or sort of a tag team and the cycle would continue Mm -hmm. but I don't know if it has to be either or at least in my Mm -hmm. experience one of the things that we talk about in transforming community is the fact that Jesus was not a victim in his story. Amen. But that Jesus says very clearly in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. And Thank to you. me, that's where the question is. How do we know when it is time for us to lay it down or how mm-hmm. do we know? And so I think there's a discernment there, you know, about the journey itself. Where am mm-hmm. I on the journey? Where am I in the rhythm? And Am I willing to do whatever? Like Jesus clearly knew that it was the right time for him. He had discerned that in an, in, in an intimate relationship with his father. So he, he did lay it down. But he wanted everybody to know I'm not a victim here. <laughs> you know, I entered into the Pascal mystery of my own accord. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't think we all always feel like we have a choice like that. But it does raise the question of when we know it's our time to enter into the mystery, the Pascal mystery, how do we suffer redemptively? And that's where I'd maybe like for us to conclude. How do we, how do we suffer in such a way that it's redemptive, or I might even say transformative? You know, me hearing you repeat the Pascal mystery again reminds me of Walter Brueggemann's Psalms, 
where he says all the Psalms are oriented around orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Mm -hmm. And that is a transformative process, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting because the Pascal mystery is life, death, being a burial resurrection, right? Like, and so like, that's really interesting that like, I'm like kind of connecting that in this conversation in a way that I haven't thought about before. But I think like, as we think about like our discernment, like of the rhythm, we're not in control of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. I think there's a release of control in that space. There's an invitation to walk with God through it all. We're not in control of life, death, and resurrection. And I think there's like a, a aspect of being yielded to the Lord and all of those spaces. But then I heard the second part of your question, Ruth, and it's like, when do we like fight, resist, you know, um, speak up? And, and kind of for me, my general disposition, um, particularly because I'm, I'm oriented, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, um, I mean, even like in school when, you know, guys would fight, I never was a fighter. I was a negotiator. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, I just would kind of talk my way out of whatever situation was going to be. But like, um, but, but I am kind of in some ways, like, I, I usually am like one not to just kind of like lay down and take it. And I've also been socialized in that way as a man. And so I want to be like really careful and some of these dynamics that like we would talk about. But one of my rubrics is I get a sense that we should allow the the life death and like resurrection kind of as a disposition when it when it comes to us. But then when it comes to like loving your neighbor, like Mm -hmm. and, and trying to think about like, let me kind of like advocate fight on behalf of like somebody else like in partnership with them right so i think like that's one Mm -hmm. space because we're like not always inclined to do something for somebody else Mm -hmm. we tend to kind of be more inclined to do for ourselves and so i would kind of want to check the pascal mystery for myself first but then have a more disposition to kind of like advocate love my neighbor for somebody else like and kind of jump in in that way um as kind of like which which setting do I go to first, right? And I think that's like a way that I would, I mean, that's the way I, I try to think about it. My one caveat is oftentimes women, particularly mothers, I see this often women just in general are like socialized to take care of everybody else before they take care of themselves. I saw this when we ran our internship. Oftentimes people of color are oftentimes more oriented to make sure white people are taken care of before they take care of themselves. And he's just different, different ways. And so I, I, I think that like, there is a dynamic of socialization that I think one should pay attention to. And I think this kind of goes to like a, a space of like where the spirits at work, you know, and a lot of spirit to kind of lead and guide Dr. Cones. He has a, a book on like Martin and Malcolm, you know, and Dr. James Cones, you know, really kind of wrestled in a time where, I mean, the whole black liberation theology uh, came mm-hmm. out because of the fact that he was seeing a mixed amount of suffering in seminary asking, what does God think about this? And they're like, God has nothing to say about this. And he's like, oh, man, I got to figure something out then. Mm. And so, you know, he goes on this journey of trying to understand what God has to say. And he and, and he was basically, he had both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X inside of him trying to, like, figure things out theologically. If we kind of take this historical lesson kind of as a metaphor, about the agitation and in these different type of ways through through on our surface that Dr. King was having. But then uh, Malcolm X was not an aggressor, but he was saying like, hey, I'm going to operate 
within the rules of the American society when it comes to like Second Amendment and the right to bear arms and all that kind of stuff. It was through that tension created some opportunities for growth, right? And so it's, it's just such a, we live in a very complex, messy world. And, you know, I, I do think that that is a tension that we live in that requires a bit of discernment of the spirit. Mm-hmm. It does remind me of the importance of discerning companions on our journey, which is part of my contribution to this week and the little IVP book that we've been working through is that to have companions for this journey that can help us discern what is the moment for me, what is really happening here, spiritually speaking, is, is this the time for letting go and falling into the ground and dying? Or is this the time for me to emerge into resurrection life? I sometimes think about Rosa Parks and I think about the fact that there were many, many days when she did not stand up, you know, when she did not refuse to sit at the back of the bus. There are many, many other days when that wasn't what she discerned, but then there was one day, and I know it was because of tiredness, that she was just tired. And also, I I do wonder, though, there was a day that was different for her when she knew today's my day, you know, to say no. Today's when the, the day when I'm supposed to do something else. I'm not supposed to lay down and die today. I'm supposed to stand up today. And so I just wonder about that moment for all of us, you know, the discernment moment when we with our companions on the journey discern what is happening here spiritually speaking today what is mine to stand up for today what day is it you know for me where am i in this great mystery of the spiritual life and may i discern it well and may i have companions with me who help me to discern so my prayer is is that maybe in this week as we look at the pascal mystery and we look at this truth that jesus communicates was it not necessary for the messiah to suffer and then to die before coming into his glory that maybe this week, you know, we'll be willing to be in that question with God and with our companions and to say, what is the call today? Where am I in this great rhythm of our faith? And what is, what is God calling from me today for myself, but also for others? I loved your point, David, that, that, that when it comes to others and what we might be able to stand for, for others, so often the call is to, is definitely to stand up for those need justice in any given moment. So I think the story of Lazarus is also a very interesting story, and we'll, we'll read that. We'll have Terry Wildman read that. Another perspective on this whole question of life, death, burial, and resurrection, because Lazarus had, had actually died, mm-hmm. and he was actually in the grave. And Jesus' discernment was it's time for him to live again. Come and on. he walks right into it and calls Lazarus out of the grave Thank and says, today is your day. Today is your day when you emerge from death into resurrected life. And so another really exciting story about Jesus' presence with us and the presence of spirit calling forth life in those places that feel so, so dead. Well, then that might be a good practice for us this week is this discernment around where am I in the Pascal mystery? Am I in the suffering part? Am I in the, the active dying part? Am I in the burial part, which is significant in terms of our waiting period where we don't really know what's happening? We're waiting for God to do something. Or am I at the place where God is inviting me to emerge into, into resurrection life? Where am I? How can I, can I discern where I am in the Pascal rhythm this week? May we discern it well. Uh, this week and every week. Amen. And now we will close with a reading from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27, from the First Nations Version translation, read by its translator, 
Terry Wildman. When Creator Sets Free came to House of Figs, he found out that Creator Helps Him had died four days earlier and was laid in a burial cave. House of Figs was a close walk from Village of Peace. Many of the local tribal members had gathered, along with the women, to give comfort to headwoman and healing tears for the loss of their brother. When headwoman heard that Creator Sets Free was coming, she went out to greet him, but healing tears stayed home. When she found Creator Sets Free, she said to him, Wisdom Keeper, if you had been here, my brother would still be with us. Even so, I know if you ask anything of the Great Spirit, he will give it to you. Your brother will live again, he answered. I know he will live again, she said, when the dead rise up at the end of all days. I am the rising from the dead and the life that follows, he told her. The ones who trust in me will live again, even after death. Death will never be the end of the ones who are alive and trust in me. Do you believe what I am saying to you? Yes, Wisdom Keeper, she smiled and said. I believe you are the Chosen One, the Son of the Great Spirit, the One who came down into this world from above. 